This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy and the Gospel of John. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And from John. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to New City. My name is Scott Redd, as Rue said, and I'd like to personally welcome you this morning for worship. Let's let's have a short time of prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I, I do pray that your name would be called, proclaimed, declared, claimed as holy this morning. That you would look down, you'd see redeemed images of you responding and reflecting your glory and your love. Pray, Lord, that you'd bless us in the reading of your word, that you would illuminate it in our hearts, that we would understand it, first of all, but that your spirit would also attend to it, that we might see ourselves changed. And I pray, Lord, that you would open doors in our hearts that we might not even know are closed through the reading of your word. We know it has that power, and so we throw ourselves on your mercy. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as uh, many of you know, uh, the Red family, my family, is moving. We're in the process of transitioning up to Washington, D.C., where I'm going to take another job uh, at the seminary where I teach. And uh, it's created kind of a conflict for us. We've, we found, found ourselves fragmented in between these two existences. We, we have, I've already started working the job, by the way, in D.C. So I've got two jobs, one in a faraway town. We're trying to rent or sell our house down here while we're also looking for houses up there. We're, we're 
being reunited with old friends from the Washington, D.C. area, but also saying goodbye to dear friends here. And it's created for us this sense of fragmentation. Um, And it's exhausting. It's tiring to be fragmented. But apparently, a lot of us feel that way. Matter of fact, just last month, uh, the Atlantic Monthly published one of those articles that soon becomes sermon fodder, and uh, it was called, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? Okay. Now, they're not just talking about Facebook, of course. They're talking about all of electronic social networking. And the article said what many of us have already known, and even probably posted on Facebook at one point or another, which is that the multiplication of social contacts, the multiplication of social networks, has not necessarily resulted in a deepening or an extending of deep personal relationships. And so, yes, as we become more divided by multiple relationships and the electronic platforms that make those relationships possible, some of us are becoming inversely, but maybe expectedly, lonely. Because fragmentation is a lonely place to be. You know, but in America, there's also this opposing tendency because while we feel ourselves maybe being fragmented, American history tells us that Americans have always seen themselves as simple. Okay, even the Puritans at the dawn of the country prided themselves in simple life, the simple, rural, bucolic, agrarian life that culminated on Sunday morning in simple worship. And in the 19th century, one of our great poets, Henry David Thoreau, I would take you back to your high school English class for a moment. He went into the woods, the Connecticut woods, to live deliberately alone, as he said. And he came out with his prophetic message to simplify, simplify, simplify. Now, of course, he meant something by that that was very unique. It was outward in orientation. What he was saying was this. When I was in nature and I learned how to survive and live out there, I found that the life of simple survival, the life of nature, is a simple life and it's preferable to the fragmented and um, alienating life that comes out of the technologies of the 19th century. Now, living in the 21st century, we say, you have no idea. So there is this search for simplicity, and it continues today, particularly in the educated class of which many of us here belong. We have this desire for simplicity, simple clothing, simple design, simple eating, thinking about these things while we're reading a magazine called Real Simple. And all of this interest in simplicity is fine. I'm not here to say it's wrong. As a matter of fact, it can be very gratifying, and it might even be wise. But let's look at the logic of it. It's working out this idea, this theory, that if we can simplify our circumstances, the life outside of ourselves, the things that by definition are not we ourselves, then we can somehow find ourselves simplified. If we can simplify our style of dress, our furniture and our houses, our travel, our food, our relationships, our children's schedules, then we can find ourselves becoming more simple on the inside. So it's all aimed at our circumstances. And not that there's anything wrong about that, but I do want to highlight that the Bible calls us to another kind of simplification, one that is quite different. It's not at odds with it, but it's quite different. It's a simplicity that springs up 
and the lover of a God who is simple, the lover of a God who is one, as Deuteronomy 6 says. Sure, there's nothing wrong with eating a diet of raw food or only wearing underwear that's sewn from locally grown cotton. But the biblical notion of simplicity, the simple life, does not spring up from the character of our lifestyle, but rather from the character of the God who loves us. This is the logic, and this is the theology, actually, of the book of Deuteronomy. That the character of the God who loves us should and does make claims on the lives of those who are his people. Not only on who we are, but on how and what we love. So I want to reiterate this one part that we just read. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 says this, Hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, or possibly the Lord is our God, then the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Now this section of Deuteronomy, the one that I just read, is famous. You know that because if you've read the Gospels, you've heard Jesus say, yep, this is the one, this is the big commandment. But it's been famous ever since Moses uttered it. As a matter of fact, for thousands of years, this has been called a very, by a very particular name. It's been called the Shema. Okay? And it's named after the first word of that sentence, the Hebrew word, which means here, as in Hero Israel. And that word is Shema. So say that after me. Shema. Let's try it again. Shema. Oh, very good. See? Now you know Hebrew. All right? Well, I go to seminary. All my Hebrew students are like, yeah, right, whatever. Okay. <clears throat> Shema. And it's considered to be the core. It's the beating heart of Moses' law, of, Mo- of the Mosaic Code. And it's given immediately after the Ten Commandments. And in a way, it kind of becomes a summary. It's a simple summary and a theological underpinning of the Ten Commandments that came right before it. After all, it's not hard to see how God's oneness might inspire his people to reject all other gods but him. Or to not make idols of him because he's already made his image. Right? And he's put it in them. Or to honor his name. And it's not hard to see how if we love him with all of our hearts and our minds and our strength, then that might lead us to redefine the way we think about work and rest by honoring the Sabbath. And how his people might help us think about how we should care for one another since we are, after all, made in the image of this one God. Maybe we should honor the parental authority over us. And maybe we should honor life by not murdering Maybe we should honor marriage. Maybe we should honor property. Maybe we should honor truth if the teaching of the Shema has taken root within us. See, the Shema provides this simple summary of every claim that the Lord makes on his people. And it is simple. It's simple in many senses of the word. It's marvelously simple. It's challengingly simple. It can be terrifyingly simple but I would argue that it's also life-giving in its simplicity. Because God's character as one and as whole and as simple demands a response from his people that is in kind. I want to say that again. Because God is one, because he's whole, and because he's simple, it demands a response from his people that is in kind. And that is simple love. It's simple, whether public or private, individual or corporate, spiritual or carnal. God's people are to be simply and wholly in love with him. 
So if it's that important, if this is really the core of Moses' teaching, I want to meditate just one more moment on the logic of it so that we really get it. He's saying this, if the Lord is one, if he is unique and singular, then his people are respond to love him in the same way. That each one of us is called in our love of him not to be divided, not to be fragmented, not to set him up as the Canaanites would. Now remember Moses in Deuteronomy is teaching to the Israelites right before they go into Canaan. And so he's preparing them for what they're going to see there. And one of the things they'll see is this, that there's a pantheon of gods. Everyone knows that, right? Yom rules over the sea, and Baal rules over the thundercloud and brings the rain, and Dagon, Baal's father, reigns over the vegetation. So depending on what you need, you will worship one or the other gods. But your worship's divided. Yahweh says, I'm one. There's no dividing. There's no division. There's no fragmentation. But you must have simple love. And this needs to be said, because ever since the fall, there has been this general and constant tendency towards fragmentation, away from simplicity. Ever since Adam and Eve turned their faces from, from the Lord in the garden, they began this general slide in humanity towards fragmentation and away from simplicity. As a matter of fact, I think the most poignant and obvious image of humanity's shattered simplicity is in that scene of Adam and Eve made in the image of God, hiding behind a hedge in the garden when their Lord, who loves them and has done nothing wrong to them, has given them only goodness all the time. And he comes calling for them, and they hide because they're fragmented. See, fragmentation must always be maintained by careful secrecy and deceit. But what Moses is saying here in Deuteronomy 6 is that the Lord has not abandoned his call for simple love, but that rather through a relationship, and he calls it covenant, through a relationship he seeks to restore and to expand the relationship he always meant to have with his people. He wants to restore and expand it, but it has to be done in a way that is reflective of his own character. Any other attempt at simplicity is going to fail. It has to be in light of God's character. And so here's the logic of, of the simplicity. Because the Lord is unique and singular, he is not only Israel's God, but he's also an undivided, whole, and one Lord, and he calls his people to simple love. And that's why the Shema cannot end just with verse 4. The Lord your God is one. It can't just end there. Because the, the fact of God's oneness is not the point of the confession. It's just the foundation for what the confession says, which is this, and therefore you must love your God with a simple, wholehearted, whole-minded, whole-strength kind of love. I would point out that Moses doesn't leave anything out. He includes the whole of the person. These are not individual categories of humanity, this mind and the heart and the strength but rather it's the desire, it's the self, and it's sort of the outward effect of the person, meaning everything about you. Okay? Because mere recognition of the truth that the Lord is God and that he is one is not enough. That's what James says in James chapter 2, 19. He says, you say God is one? And what is he quoting there? He says, you say God is one? He's quoting the Shema. That's great. The demons say that also and they tremble. 
So just acknowledging the truth is not the point of the confession. The point is to respond with the simple love because faithfulness is not synonymous with theological knowledge. But rather, faithfulness must find expression with the simple love of the whole person living in community. I would add one last thing to this first part. (laughs) When Moses talks about the whole person, notice that he leaves nothing out. There are no free states in the kingdom of the self. But rather, they are all devoted to the Lord. And that's what he means when he talks about simple love. So the question arises in us, how do we do this? We know that we don't have it. We know that we don't have a natural tendency for it. That rather our tendency is to go the other way, towards fragmentation and away from simplicity. So how do we get it? Well, Moses actually tells us. He gives us a very clear and practical guide. He says this, it's easy. Write God's message to you. Write his words about his love and about his character on your heart. Write his words, his message on your heart. Why? So that you can talk about them when you're with your children, so that you can talk about them when you're with your friends, so that you can talk about them when you're with the people in your community, so that you can talk about them when you're in your house eating and when you're on the road walking and doing business, when you're traveling from place to place, so that you can meditate on them when you're falling asleep and that you can wake up and you can refresh yourself with them in the morning. Write them on your heart. How do you nurture simple love? You take the words of the God who loves you and you write them on your heart. You meditate on them. You have the Holy Spirit change you through them. And that's how we resist the slide toward fragmentation. We resist it by reflecting on, wrestling with, proclaiming God's words and letting them infiltrate and form and illuminate every aspect of our lives. That includes our inner life as much as our outer life. Now note also that this is explicitly relational. This isn't something you do just alone in your quiet time, but it has to do with talking. Moses emphasizes this right away. Go out, tell people about it. Talk to people about it. It's relational. If you want to drink deep of the love and the person of the Lord, then drink deep of his word to you. Be reminded of his mighty works of his overflowing grace, of his sovereign power, of his gentle kindness, and his unalloyed lordship. Because the oneness of the Lord calls for a personal life that is wholly integrated around simple love. But simple love, of course, is not only personal. It flows into the public. Parents are just to talk about it with their children. They write it on their doorposts so that people walking around can see God's word written to them. There's public expression of the personal love. There's another way in the Old Testament, at least, in which worship and that response of love was to be public. And it was founded in the idea of the temple. See, in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic law, God told his people, you worship in a simple way. There's a simplicity to the way you respond to me. And I'm going to make it just even obviously, worship, uh, obviously simple to you. You can only worship in one place. You have to do it in the tabernacle. And everyone has to come together at the same time, and sit down, and sit next to each other, and worship me. And then later when you build the temple, I'm going to be in the temple. And that's where it's going to happen. But of course, there was a slide in Israel. 
There's that tendency towards fragmentation. And so as soon as the northern kingdom was established, what did the northern kingdom kings do? They went and they set up the high places. Okay? So you could worship Yahweh elsewhere. We have no reason to believe that the high places were built originally for Baal worship or some kind of false worship, but rather they were there to worship Yahweh, just not in Judah, because the northern kingdom would lose out politically if his if yearly his citizens would have to go down to the southern kingdom to worship. As a matter of fact, that's why no northern king is ever deemed a success in the Old Testament because no northern king ever tears down those high places because Yahweh said, I want worship to be simple. I want it to be one. I want you to come together. So how can we have any hope that such simple love is possible in the face of so much failure. I mean, even when we read the Bible, and that is just one example that I gave, the Bible sometimes comes across as a catalog, as a case study in failure to find simple love. How can we hope to find it? I mean, if Old Testament Israel, who saw God and received his word directly and saw these wonderful works and these mighty acts of the Lord around them, could not find this simple love, how can we hope to attain it ourselves? Well, we can be comforted. We can be comforted because there was an Israelite who was willing to return to the Lord the kind of love that God called him to. There was an Israelite who was willing to work out that kind of love of whole mind and whole heart and whole strength so that he could achieve by himself what the community could not achieve on its own. And that is he prepared himself to die in order to secure a new heart and a new life for the community. The words of the Shema were on his mind. And that's what we read in John 17 this morning. And I just want to read a part of that. Notice John, in John 17, Christ is about to go to the throne. John 18 is when he gets betrayed. He's about to go to the, me, to the throne. He's about to go to the cross and then the throne. He's about to go to the cross and he's sitting in the, in the garden. He knows what's happening, and this is what he prays. This is what comes to mind. He says this, I do not pray for these only, and he's talking about the disciples who are sleeping not far away, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Okay, now he's talking about us. You see that, right? He's not just talking about his disciples. He's talking about the historic church, and he says this, I pray that they will all be one, and listen for the Shema in this prayer. I pray that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then to verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. See, Jesus Christ knew something about that simple love that Moses couldn't yet articulate. And that was the fact that simple love, simple worship of God, must be founded in a Trinitarian belief in God. Okay? Bear with me for a moment. It's going to get a little theological, but we're going to get out real fast. Okay? Simple Christian love is this. It's based on, it flows out of, and it's empowered by the simple love that the three persons of the Trinity have for one another. The love for the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Father and the Son to the Spirit, and all the different permutations that you can think up. Okay? 
How do we know this? How do we know that Jesus believed that our love had to be founded on the love of the Trinity, the love of God for its individual persons? Because when he's about to give himself up on the cross, when he's about to be betrayed, when, as we like to say, time was of the essence for him, he prayed as we would. He prayed for the things that he desired most. Now, being a good rabbi, he had the heart of the Mosaic law on his heart, on his mind. And so when he prays, he quotes out of the Shema. But he expands it and he updates it to account for the revelation of himself. He says, yes, Father, you are one, but let them love with simple love. Just like Moses called them to, being one with another, just as you, Father, and I are one. So let me ask you this. Will the Father deny what the Son asks of him in his most dire moment? To put it another way, could the second person of the Trinity ask for something of the first person of the Trinity, and the first person of the Trinity would say no? Now, I know this may sound like a seminary professor getting excited about pointy-headed and abstract theological notions, but let me show you why you should be excited about this as well. If the son's dying wish, if his dying wish is for his followers to realize Moses' dream of simple love, and he takes this request to his father, do we have any reason to believe that the father would not respond with a resounding yes? Do we have any reason to believe that? And if that's true, if the Father, the Lord of the universe, who formed the cosmos, who formed humanity, who made your heart, who called you to this moment in church today, if he is dedicated to fulfilling his son's dying wish to give you simple love, is there any other end that you can imagine? Is there any other result than to have a life that is marked by and tastes that kind of simple love? This is immensely practical because it's about who you are and how you love. And if I could be so bold, I'd say this is the most important thing, the most impending and pressing need that you have in your life. Jesus' prayer means this. If you are in Christ, you can take this to the bank and you can bet on it that he is personally working through the power of his spirit which Paul just calls the Spirit of Christ. He's personally working through the power of his Spirit to develop this kind of love in your life. And there's no other way your life can end than to be one that is tasting and has tasted simple love. Of course, I should add this. If there is anyone here who does not see themselves as being in Christ, and what I mean by that is that they do not acknowledge what Moses and then later Jesus taught, which is that the Lord is one and that we should love him with our heart and our mind and our strength and that Jesus Christ has procured forgiveness and has procured freedom and everlasting life for those who follow him. If you have not recognized that fact and submitted to it and thrown yourself upon his merciful, merciful love, then I think the scriptures are asking you today, do you want this kind of love? Is this something that strikes you as appealing? Is there something right about it? Do you want to be changed? Do you want to put aside the divisions and the fragmentations, the unrest, and pursue a a goal that is finally worth pursuing? This is what the good news about Jesus offers you. It's not a life of ease. It's not a life of convenience. It's not a life of quick pleasure. 
As a matter of fact, it's not even a life of life. Jesus says you have to lose your life in order to gain it. But it does offer something else, something true. That's true love, true meaning, and true hope for a life that does not end. A life living in the blessed communion of the Savior and of the Lord, the creator of the universe. So if that's appealing to you, even if it's still a bit of a mystery, and to be honest, we can't do anything about the mystery part because that's just what it is. But if this is appealing to you, and it seems right to you, I'd encourage you, grab me after the service. service grab Rue, who was up here earlier. Grab Mike Bolin. If you're in a community group, a home group, grab your home group leader and talk to him about it. We'd love to talk to you about it. Let me add this one last but I think significant point. The path to the kind of simple love that Moses and Jesus talk about is measured in lifetimes. Okay, you hear that? It's measured in lifetimes. The spiritual growth of this sort is not cookie cutter. You will meet Christians who have experienced radical change in a matter of 24 hours, and then you will meet Christians who feel as if they have been stagnant for years. But I would remind you that the growth is measured in lifetimes. There are some who sweat and struggle and fight for every inch, and there are some who see it radically happen in the course of an afternoon. And it goes the other way, too. You can have a season of success and then seem to blow it all in an afternoon. I did. As a matter of fact, just this last week, I had to return to a friend with whom I'd been having a conversation because during the course of our conversation, I spoke wickedly. I can't think of another way to say it. I spoke venom and poison into our relationship about another believer. And as I got home that night and something was on my mind and the Lord brought this hurtful way to me, as the psalmist says, we're going to read in just a second. I said, Lord, I don't want this. I don't want this on me. I don't want this kind of destruction and this kind of venom coming out of me. Forgive me. Take it from me. Rip it away from me. And then, of course, I had to go back to my friend and I had to tell him, I'm sorry. I, the conversation was going so well. And then all of a sudden, I just dropped this steaming pile of compost in the middle of it. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry for what I did to our conversation and what I did to our relationship. And the miracle is that he was willing to forgive me and restore me and, and, and receive me back. And so I don't use this as an example of how simple love doesn't work or it's still futile. I use it as an example of how it actually does work, of how fragmentation can be erased, how wounds can be mended and healed, that wholeness and simplicity can actually be within reach because Jesus has asked his father that he would make it so, and his father will not turn him down. So what does it look like to pursue growth that is measured in lifetimes? Well, in order to move from fragmentation to simplicity, from division to wholeness, we have to see those dividing lines, those fragments erased in our lives. Before coming into ministry, I worked in public relations in Washington, D.C. And as any large agency experiences, you will take on clients from time to time who are competitors in the same industry, okay? 
And when you do that, you have to create in the agency what is called a Chinese wall. You have to set up an artificial division in the middle of the agency that separates the two client teams. So say you have one team that handles Pepsi and the other that handles Coke. You can't have them sitting next to each other lest the Coke team see the strategy on the computer of the guy from the Pepsi team. So you have to construct what's called a Chinese wall. And it means that some people are forbidden to talk to each other. And it means that we sometimes have to move desks around so that we don't accidentally share information. And when one team is offering its strategy meeting in the conference room, we have to draw the curtains so that no one could walk by and kind of accidentally see something they shouldn't see. And as you can imagine, the agency hates to have too many Chinese walls because as soon as you create a Chinese wall, you basically take the productivity and the capacity of the agency and make it a fraction. You cannot actually give your client everything you want to because the company is divided between the two clients. And so there's often a sigh of relief when one client moves on to another office or maybe goes to another firm because it means that we can be a whole company again. Let me offer this paradigm Sin is the behavior and the thoughts and the desires that arise from the Chinese walls that we establish in our own life. Think about it. The result and the fruit of sin is internal fragmentation. Think about the last time you really kind of obviously sinned, okay? Whether it was in public or in private, before you did whatever you did or thought whatever you thought, I will bet that you first had to say to the Lord, You cannot be here right now. You can't be present in this place because of what's about to happen. You may have done that actively. I suspect most of the time, though, it's through selective forgetting. We forget about who we are in Christ. Sin happens when we say, I know that you are one Lord, and that when I worship you on Sunday morning, I really believe that, and I say things like there is none beside you. But right now, I have something else or someone else that needs to be beside you, someone else that I need to worship. It's saying, Lord, you may be present at New City Church on Sunday morning, but you cannot be present now because I'm bored and I need to amuse myself. You can't be present right now because I'm talking to this person. I need to power over them, okay? You can't be present because I need to feed my ego, and the kids have been exhausting me all day long, and I've been stretched just one millimeter too far. You can't be here right now. And so we set up the Chinese wall. Repentance, on the other hand, is the act of bringing that wall before the Lord and asking him to tear it down. And that is how repentance is really a gift of God. It's not a task. It's not a chore. It is a gift of God. Look at how the psalmist talks about it in Psalm 139. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous or hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, repentance is tearing down those walls that we have constructed to make our sins possible. It's saying this, I want to rest in simple love with all my heart and with all myself and with all of my strength. And I want it directed towards the worship of the one Lord and the service of his image on this earth, my neighbor's. Tear down these walls. Lord, tear down these walls. So I would encourage you, as you hear Jesus' call to repent and believe throughout the gospel, 
Don't think of this as a game of gotcha. Repentance is not a game, a personal game of gotcha that you play with yourself. It isn't about self-loathing. And it isn't about humble posturing by being able to admit the most amount of sins or the most grievous sins. It's not a game, but it's a gift of God. And it's a stance in life that, I say, that says this, I know that my true rest is in the Lord and that I love him best when I love him simply. And I want that in my life. And the Lord has promised that he will make it happen in me through his spirit. It's throwing the doors of your soul open before the Lord and saying, come in. I want you in here. Don't let me wall off these rooms and replace you with another God. Because you are one. I want to be singular and whole in my love of you. Now, of course, Henry David Thoreau thought that he had to be alone to learn about simplicity, but biblical simplicity doesn't work that way. The Spirit works through community. It's gathering here in worship. It's joining with one voice and one body and taking the Lord's Supper. It's praying for one another and with one another. But wholeness of the individual in the Bible requires wholeness of the community. It's not that we're perfect. It's not that we have always expressive, expressive and expression, expre, excuse me, it's not that we always express simple love, but that we are working lovingly and supportively. And when we blow it, we repent to one another and we forgive one another and we return and restore one another to rightful and loving relationship. I just realized as I was preparing this sermon, this is actually the last week that I'm here my wife will be here, Jen will, Jen will be here next week, but I'll be in D.C. And so I do want to take this opportunity to just publicly thank you for being that kind of community for my family. I want to thank you for receiving us, for caring for Jennifer and caring for our four girls so well. It is a sad thing for us to leave. We're excited, though, to see what the Lord has in store for the city of Orlando through New City Church because I find this church to be a faithful Not perfect, but a faithful expression of simple love. And that kind of love just can't be found in a cabin alone in the Connecticut woods. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift this day up to you. You are a God of grace and a God of light. You are one and there is none like you, though we would try because of our hearts to set up Lord's and deities, and a pantheon like those Canaanites. We still desire that, Lord. We're just more sophisticated about it. I pray that you have mercy on us, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to you, that this would be a message of hope and of rest and of joy and encouragement, knowing that we have an intercessor, which means that we have someone who prays for us to you, and you cannot say no to them, and that he has said, give them perfect love. Give them simple and whole love. So we lay hold of that promise, Lord. We seek it out. May your spirit bring us to it as we worship you now and let it be expressed towards you as we also express it towards those around us in the week ahead. Pray for renewal here, Lord, and grace on this church. In your son's name we pray, amen.